بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على أشرف المرسلين سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وأصحابه أجمعين ما بعد السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته My respected elders, brothers in Islam Today inshallah I just want to share some ideas I hope it will be beneficial And inshallah I will also appreciate some feedback after Because I want to discuss something that's Integral to being a Muslim And it's vital to the Ummah at large And in order to discuss this I want to start somewhere else Doesn't really have much to do with our discussion I want to talk about something In the field of logic or argumentation It's called the fallacy of composition Now it sounds complicated But it's a really simple thing So just imagine you have a structure And the structure is built of bricks Nothing else Now the fallacy of composition is to assume that whatever is true of each of the individual bricks is true of the entire structure. So one might say, oh the bricks are all rectangular, therefore the structure must be rectangular. Right? That's a fallacy, it's a logical fallacy because of course it's not true, the structure can be any way it wants, but, or any way you build it. But the way we think sometimes is that we tend to prioritize ourselves and see the condition of the ummah through the way we practice Islam, right? So we de- tend to make like sweeping statements. So we'll say, for example, I work in town, and I walk with my laptop bag every day for one year, I didn't get robbed. So I might be tempted to make the statement that, you know, town is very safe, I, n- I never got robbed. But it's a silly statement to make. Or someone might say, you know, the economy is fine, my business is doing well, so the economy is fine. You know, that's not the wrong, that, that's the wrong way to think. Because you're looking at your experience and now you're extrapolating it to the entire, let's say the, the, the ecosystem or the economy or the, the area, you're extrapolating it to the entire area, whereas it may not hold true for the whole. So how this relates to what I want to talk about is that when we think about whether Islam is flourishing or Islam is not flourishing, sometimes we tend to look at it individualistically, so on an individual level. So for example, someone might think, Alhamdulillah, I'm reading my five daily salah, my children are going to a Muslim school, Alhamdulillah, it's it's a great achievement, and my financial transactions, I got a mufti overlooking it, and that, and I'm doing that, everyone I know is doing that, therefore, the ummah as a whole, or the ummah, or the community of Durban, must be flourishing, because we're all practicing Islam individually. Now this is a logical fallacy because Islam and Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam trains us to think as an ummah. That al-mu'minuna karajulin wahid. The believers are all like one body. Or Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, Like the example, the believers are to one another like a structure. Each one supports the other. So when we look at whether Islam is flourishing or whether the ummah is doing well, we need to look at whether the goals and objectives that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam had for the religion of Islam, whether it's being fulfilled in the, in the world we see around us. And when we really look at it, that for a hundred years maybe, or you know, give or take here in Durban and maybe longer in the Cape, then how much of the population even knows about Islam? How much of the population really understands with Islam? This week maybe I spoke to about 10 non-Muslims. They had no idea what Islam really was. No idea that it's so similar to their own beliefs. No idea that it makes so much of sense. 
So looking at it from that perspective, do we have any central leadership dictating what the Muslim community of Durban needs to do in order to fulfill the goals of Sharia on that level? Do we have anything like that? And when you look at it from that perspective, you might be tempted to think that maybe we're not doing so, Alhamdulillah many things are done, but we're not doing so well after all. And you can basically articulate this by, the, by way of an example. If you think about it, right, we have Quran, we have Hadith. In there are the guiding principles of how a government should be run, of how an economy should be run, of how social justice needs to be enacted. Yet, we are content with practicing Islam individually and leaving those things to which the answers are found in Quran and Hadith to non-Muslims. They can look after the government. They can enact social justice. They can. We leave it to them. Whereas we, the haqq and the truth is in Islam that we have, but we're okay with other people doing it. So that's a way of compartmentalizing Islam to only one facet of your life and not extrapolating it to the entire world that you're living in, which is an issue when you're talking about Islam. If you look at Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, when he was living in Makkah, Makkah al-Mukarramah, and the people were coming for the Hajj. So the mushrikeen of Makkah, they knew that this Islam is true. They knew that anyone who hears about Islam, they're going to get attracted to Islam immediately. So they had like a whole conference and they're thinking to themselves, and Quran records it in Surah Mudathir, what are we going to tell the people who are coming for Hajj? Because as soon as they hear about Islam, as soon as the truth hits them, they're going to accept Islam and we don't want this. So we need to tell them. And so Walid bin Mughira is thinking, in هَذَا إِلَّا سِحْرُ يُؤْثَر We'll tell them this is some sihr or whatever that's going to affect your mind. Because otherwise, they knew, and everyone knew at the time, because of the people who were wielding the haq, that anyone who comes into contact with it will immediately be influenced by it. So that was the state at that time. Now just contrast that to today's time where we live in now, again in a similar situation, Muslim minority and the majority is non-Muslim, we are so scared to go out there to, you know, to, to, to make ourselves be affected by the world around us that we try to compartmentalize Islam. So we're scared of going out there, scared of going to school, scared of going to university. Why? We'll get affected and it has happened. But look at the change of mindset that initially the world was scared that if Islam comes there, it'll spread to the entire world. Now we are scared that if we expose Islam to the ideologies, the secular ideologies, the Muslims will get changed. Completely opposite thinking. The, the, the thinking is one of where now it's been like turned on its head. It's like an emasculated form of thinking that we're scared. No, we don't. But we have the haq, we have the truth. We're supposed to be looking at the world, we're supposed to be looking at the community we're living in as a fertile place where we can spread Islam. And the only way we're going to change this, inshallah in my understanding, is if we talk about it and we spread an ideology and an idea and a concept around. So many people will say, you know, you're just talking, but what action are you doing? But before actions, before the flow of actions, before practical steps are implemented, there's always a stage where the people's minds are made to understand something and an ideology is spread. And from ideas stem actions. And the best example of that is the life of Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa That he comes to a community now. In the community, if you look at it, they were living for centuries. They had no central government system. The world looked at them as being backwards. They didn't have, uh, you know, it, it, it was unthinkable that in 20 years time, they would conquer the most of the known world. It was unthinkable. But Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa before any actions were taken to go to Rome or Persia, before any of that, 
Nabi Sallallahu changed their mindset such that what was at one stage unthinkable now became inevitable. That every Sahabi knew that one day we're going to take over Persia and Rome. No matter that 20 years ago we the thought that we couldn't even think of the thought, but now before any action took place, we definitely know that it's going to happen. So that's the power of an idea. That if you spread an idea through a community, something that at one stage, as we said, seems unthinkable, eventually becomes inevitable. That it will eventually happen. And I want to give another example. This is an example on the opposite side, on the example of Shar. That all the promiscuity we see in the world today, in the 21st century, is rife in Europe, crazy, madness, mayhem that we're seeing. Zina, like it's, it's nothing, it's normal. Maybe a hundred years before that, even in Europe, it seemed unlikely, it seemed unthinkable for people to break the social order to commit adultery, to dress in the way they're dressing today. It was, it, was, it was almost impossible. But then a man by the name of Wilhelm Reich began writing, spreading his ideas. He was rejected amongst his people of his time. But his ideas spread over time and people began to think, why do we need to follow the social order? We can just have pleasure as we want. What's wrong if we go against the family structure? And based on the spread of the ideas that he wrote and others that wrote after him, you see that today there's absolute madness and mayhem in the West because the ideologies that were spread by him at a certain time eventually found their way into the minds of the people and the people's minds were opened and they said, okay, now we can just do this. There's no need for us to. Because the greatest barrier to anyone is his mind. His mind tells him, no, this can't be done. So if we talk about, you know, South Africa can become a majority Muslim country in 50 years. No, man, well, how is that possible? How is it going to happen? Unthinkable, it seems unthinkable. But once the ideas spread, people began to see it as something that can happen. Then the action and the way forward and the things that will happen, it will just happen automatically. The Sahaba didn't know that Abu Bakr was going to send Khalid bin Walid to Persia and then eventually he was going to go to Rome and then this was going to happen and then this battle and Abu Ubaidah bin Jarrah. They didn't know any of that. But they knew that it was going to happen despite what anyone at the time said. So, I want to just start by talking about you know, many people maybe in the last two months, they may have mentioned how the ummah has fallen because the sunnah of Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa was neglected. And I want to take it one step further by saying that not only the sunnah of Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa is neglected, but the whole idea of the sunnah of Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa in many ways is distorted. That if I mention sunnah of Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa certain things will pop into your mind, very important things of course. But many other things you might not even think of. That what were some of the greatest sunnahs of Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa laid down a blueprint for every Muslim minority who wants to eventually turn his country into a Muslim majority. Nabi sallallahu laid down a blueprint. What was the first step, the greatest sunnah? Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa goes around giving da'wah, 13 years in Makkah al-Mukarramah, trying ta'if, eventually Medina Munawwara, finding a place where people are receptive towards Islam, calling them towards Islam, creating da'is to spread Islam, creating an environment now where we can have a completely Muslim community. Uh, what is another great sunnah? This is one of the greatest sunnahs of Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. What is another sunnah of Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam? Ensuring that there's unity in the community. That everyone has one goal. That we focus in together. All actions are not dispersed and scattered. People are working constructively together. Another great sunnah of Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Another sunnah of Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam that was an extra at that time was yes, the minds were united, but the concept of hijrah was there to bring all of the Muslims together in one place so that they can be strength in numbers. Another great sunnah of Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa 
Wasallam was that he had a very sophisticated intelligence system. It's another great sunnah of Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Very rarely Medina was attacked and Nabi Sallallahu didn't have an idea that these people were, were going to attack. And whenever Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam attacked, many times the enemy were caught unawares because Nabi Sallallahu had a superior intelligence system. A great sunnah of Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam is to have a superior military system. That when the, uh, when the Muslim were surrounding Ta'if, Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam sent Urwa bin Mas'ud al-Thaqafi and Ghilan bin Salam al-Thaqafi also. He sent both of them to Jarash in Syria to learn how to develop certain weaponry specifically for sieges to bring to the Muslim ummah. So that's also a great sunnah of Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. A great sunnah of Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam is creating economic freedom. That when Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam went to Medina Munawwara, there were four marketplaces. Two were run by the Jews, two were run by the Mushrikeen. These marketplaces had high barriers to entry. It was very difficult to come inside. They were monopolized by the Jews and the Mushrikeen. Nabi Wasallam created his own marketplace. And he gave them, the Muslims, their own economy, their own market freedom. This is a great sunnah of Nabi Wasallam also. It's a sunnah of Nabi Wasallam. Another great sunnah of Nabi Wasallam is to educate the people. That when the prisoners were taken in the battle of Badr, they were freed by, they could teach the Muslims how to read and write. It's a great sunnah of Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Another great sunnah of Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam is those people who are waging war against you, cut off their trade routes. The people of Makkah Mukarramah were, were, were scared to trade with the people in Syria because Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was raiding the caravans that were going up and down there. Another great sunnah of Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Another great sunnah of Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam is to create independence and not allow the Muslim community to be dependent on other people who you may be suspicious of their agendas. So when Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam initially required the Jews to translate his letters, he got Zaid bin Thabit radiallahu anhu to learn the Hebrew language so he didn't have to rely on them anymore. So we can see that when we talk about the sunnah of Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, many many times we misunderstand the concept of the sunnah of Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. We are doing a disservice to it by limiting it to only certain things. The sunnah of Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam is so ingenious and so all-encompassing that any person who adopts it, he'll find success in this world and the year after, no doubt. But it encompasses a lot more than you might think. And the sad thing is that if you look at what the Zionists, may Allah curse them, Zionists, Theodore Herzl, etc. did, inadvertently or unintentionally we can say, they ended up following this pattern. So you see Theodore Herzl in the late 19th century, he spreads the idea of Zionism. People reject him, the Orthodox Reformed Jews, they reject him. But eventually the idea finds weight among some people. Then they have mass hijra and immigration through the lands of Palestine. When they're there, they create their own economy in the British mandate. They make sure that they learn how to fight from the British. They have superior military uh, capacity from the British while they're there. While they're there, they have their own education system. They do all of this here while the Muslims who were living in Palestine at that time were living simply in their villages and were unaware of all of this that was going on. And so eventually what happened was in 1947 before the British had removed their their occupation and left the lands to be as it is, then the Zionists had already mapped out every single Palestinian village in the area. They knew how many fighting men were there. They knew how many weapons were there. They knew what sort of defenses to expect. So they already prepared. It's called Plan Dalet, Plan D. You can read about it. And when the time came, they enacted that plan. Now I'm saying that here we as a Muslim ummah, we, what is stopping us from all of the imams, all of the different people from the different organizations coming together, sitting down and saying, you know what, we have the whole country to work with here. 
We have so many different indigenous groups. Maybe we need to train 20-30 ulama in all of these groups. We need to send them to give da'wah. We need to focus our da'wah. Maybe we'll start off with one place, move on to the next place, move on to the next place. What is stopping us from having a five-year plan for this country, a 10-year plan for this country, a 50-year plan for this country, where eventually everyone in the Muslim community understands that one day, we don't know exactly how it's going to happen, but one day, inshallah, this country will become a Muslim-majority country. Now, if you look at the Jews in the Qur'an, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, يَا بَنِي إِسْرَائِلَ اذْكُرُوا نِعْمَةِ الَّتِي أَنْعَمْتُ عَلَيْكُمْ وَأَنِّي فَضَّلْتُكُمْ عَلَى الْعَالَمِينَ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, if we say, okay, the Bani Israel rather, not the, in the Qur'an, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that I have favored you over everyone uh, in your time, in your era, I have favored you. And many people wonder why would Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala favor one race or one group of people over another group of people arbitrarily so to speak that it seems like that to some people. But the Quran also answers that question and the Quran speaks That yes, the Jew or the Bani Israel were favored over the people living in their time but they had a great responsibility that's why they were favored. Their responsibility was they had to take Tawheed, they had to take monotheism and they had to spread it to what they call the Gentiles. And if you read in the book of Isaiah, to be a light to the Gentiles. This was the responsibility that was on their shoulders that they had to bear for being the so-called chosen people. It came with a great responsibility. And as history will bear testament, this responsibility was not fulfilled. That monotheism was not spread through the world, uh, throughout the world through the Bani Israel. Rather, it came onto the ummah of Nabi Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam that these promises that were promised initially to the Bani Israel on the condition that they would spread monotheism they would fulfill all of the laws when they did not do so then this was transferred over to the ummah of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam and so you find that Nabi sallallahu alayhi wasallam makes the night journey to Jerusalem and there he leads all of the Anbiya in prayer again significant of all of those promises going now to Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa the ummah of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa you find that the Muslims for 16 or 17 months in Medina Munawwara they faced the Qibla the Qibla was Jerusalem and then one day in Salah the Qibla was changed from Jerusalem to Makkah again signifying that now all of those promises that were once there are now coming towards the Muslims and so now when you understand that there was this responsibility that came with being the so-called chosen people, you understand when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala addresses us and says, to us now, the ummah of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, kuntum khayra ummatin. That you now are the best of ummats. You, why? Because you have been ukhrijat linnasi ta'muruna bil ma'roofi wa tanhawna anil munkar. You are the ummah now who will take monotheism, who will take Islam, who will take pure tawheed to the entire world as the ummah of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa has done in the past. As inshallah we will do in the future. And you will read the tafsir under this year, ta'muruna bil ma'roofi meaning calling people to tawheed and prohibiting them from shirk. And you can see, وَلَوْ آمَنَ أَهْلُ الْكِتَابِ لَكَانَ خَيْرًا لَهُمْ If the people of the book, if they had to believe in Islam, that would be better for them. So we as an ummah, we have a responsibility of spreading the word of Islam, spreading the message of Islam to the people around us. And if you just look at it, we're not short of resources. The government allows us to proselytize without any restriction. The indigenous Tenguni people that are here in this land are so receptive towards Islam because their beliefs are so similar to Islam in so many ways that everything is set up now for you to take this message and there's no, there's not, there's no hurdle. 
the only hurdle for the Muslims to spread Islam to the entire country is the Muslims themselves. And so there's, you know, there's no self-respecting cooperation that you don't find. They don't have a 10-year plan, 50-year plan, 100-year plan. And they are talking about worldly profits and business and things like that. So where we as a Muslim community, it befits us, it behooves us that we have such a thing, that we do such a thing, that we have purpose, that we you know, uni- unify our efforts. Think about an example like this. If you're giving sadaqah, every single one of us here, maybe a thousand people give sadaqah, we give 20 rand, but I give to one person, you give to another person, we all give to separate people. That person, alhamdulillah, they'll buy their food for the day and then it's over after that. But if everyone unified their efforts, put it towards setting up one family. Now that family is set up now for the rest of their life, they can help other families. So when efforts are unified and not scattered, yes, if the efforts are scattered, alhamdulillah, you'll get your reward, you gave your sadaqah. But you want to see the true effect happening, true outcomes occurring in the world around you then it needs to be a unified effort where all Muslims are on one page. All Muslims understand that we need to put together, put aside all our differences, work together to create real change in this country. So inshallah, Allah give us tawfiq. Wa akhiru da'wana. Alhamdulillah.